Exodus chapter 18, starting in verse 1. Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel his people, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her home, along with her two sons. The name of the one was Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. In the name of the other, Eliezer, for he said, The God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he was encamped at the mountain of God. And when he sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her, Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. Then Moses told his father-in-law all the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them in the way, and how the Lord had delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel, in that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. The next day, Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, What is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me and I decide between one person and another and I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. Moses' father-in-law said to him, What you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Now obey my voice. I will give you advice, and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God, and you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws, and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men who are all from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens, and let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you. You will be able to endure, and all this people also will, be, will go to their place in peace. So Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. Moses chose able men out of all Israel and made them heads of, over the people, chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And they judged the people at all times. Any hard case they brought to Moses, but any small matter they decided themselves. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went away to his own country.
Thank you very much for reading for us, uh, Andy. Uh, please do keep that scripture passage open. We're going to be uh, diving into that together in a moment. But first of all, let's ask for God's help. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for uh, the time that we've spent so far in Exodus. Thank you for uh, the picture this is of uh, our journey with you as we uh, follow the Lord Jesus Christ in, in the wilderness of this world. And Lord, we pray that today you would teach us, you would encourage us. Thank you that these things are written down as an example to us on whom the, uh, the end of the age, the fulfillment of the ages has come. And so, Lord, we pray that you would direct us through your word today. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are in a transitional season as a church. We've just expanded our leadership, which is an incredible blessing to us, and we'll soon be moving to a new location, although we are not yet 100% sure what that location is. And the Lord does have good things in store, I'm very confident of that, and yet still a season of change often can be challenging. It can be challenging to any of us. And so it is with Israel in Exodus 18. In fact, throughout um, this uh, series, we've been looking at Israel's journey in Exodus. Uh, Israel have experienced the most dramatic change you can imagine. They were oppressed as slaves in Egypt, and now they are free. Uh, their path to freedom has included a challenging journey thus far. Uh, they've been challenging from wilderness to wilderness for the last few weeks. And now they are right at the edge of Mount Sinai, the mountain of God. Uh, God is about to appear before them in a very special way. Uh, they're going to receive God's law. In fact, uh, you could say that their spiritual wedding day is about to arrive because God is about to make this covenant with them. And it's good to reference that as we head into Valentine's Day this week, perhaps. And so chapter 18 is something of a transitional chapter. It stands between the journey through the wilderness and then uh, the mountain that lies ahead. It is just before Israel is about to walk down the aisle. And uh, we have to say, it's a little bit odd, to be honest. I think the chapter is a little bit anticlimactic. After weeks of miraculous provision, now we get this section where Moses is reunited with his father-in-law. I mean, maybe this makes sense. He's about to walk down the aisle, and so there's a bit of time with the father-in-law beforehand. In fact, it's mentioned again and again, the father-in-law, the father-in-law. It seems to be emphasized in the passage. Uh, but yet, as strange as this chapter might seem, it is, in fact, essential. It conveys some vital things for Israel and for us to understand uh, before this marriage between God and his people. Uh, at this transitional time for Israel, it teaches some important lessons, and it, it teaches actually the same lessons for us. Uh, it teaches the same lessons for us here at West Valley, or perhaps personally, as you navigate uh, times of change. And, and what we see in this passage are two things. Two things to get straight before we head wherever it is God leads. Uh, firstly, we need to remember that global witness is the goal. Global witness is the goal. Secondly, to effectively achieve that goal, we need, to, uh, we need godly wisdom in government. Godly wisdom in government. Uh, remember that global witness is the goal. That's the point of verses 1 through 12. Uh, but this will require godly wisdom in government. We see that in verses 13 through 27. And so let's dive into those two points. Firstly, we need to remember that, that global witness is the goal. Uh, that is, the story of God's deliverance of Israel is intended to impact the nations. Uh, this is true of Israel's rescue, but it's also true of the greater salvation that we have experienced through the Lord Jesus. Uh, his blessing is never meant to stop with us. 
Uh, what God does in your life, what God does in my life, what God does in the life of the church is intended to overflow. It's intended to benefit others around us. Uh, what God does in the life of our church is designed to impact those who are not here yet. You could put it that way. Uh, in the middle of the plagues, in Exodus chapter 9, God had already made this clear. In chapter 9, verse 16, this is what God said to Pharaoh. God said this, For this purpose I have raised you up, to show my power, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. This was the goal with all the plagues. It was the goal with the Red Sea. It was the goal with God leading Israel throughout the wilderness. God was revealing his power to a watching world. In fact, he was revealing it even to words as we can read about it today. And so what do we find in chapter, 19, uh, chapter 18? Sorry. Well, what we find in chapter 18 is a personal testimony. Uh, it's the story of a, a surprise conversion. Uh, the conversion of a, a non-Jewish man, a, a pagan. A pagan priest, nonetheless. Uh, and not just any pagan priest. This is Moses' own father-in-law, as the text repeats again and again. Uh, what an encouragement this is to any of us. Uh, to any of us who are praying for, for family members who, who don't yet know the Lord Jesus. And all of this starts uh, for Jethro with what he heard. Look down at verse 1. Uh, Jethro heard the news. Uh, Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, how the Lord had brought them out of Egypt. Uh, now, um, at Rephidim, Israel are gathered. And uh, Israel is not uh, far from uh, Midian, where Jethro lived, where Moses kind of grew up when he was out in the wilderness. And so Jethro comes out to meet Moses. He's eager to learn more. Uh, but notice how uh, Jethro brings along uh, Moses' um, wife, Jethro's own daughter, and also uh, his grandkids, Moses' children. And now we might want to ask, if you're curious about these things, why are Moses' wife and kids with Jethro in the first place? Uh, was Moses worried about their safety? Did he send them back to Midian? Uh, had he headed out on the, has he headed out on the Exodus? Um, that is what, what some people think, although I, I don't think that is so lightly because we read how he actually took them with him. If you go back earlier in Exodus, he, it seems that he loaded them up and went out with them together. Uh, more likely, he sent them back recently. Remember last week we saw this battle between Israel and the Amalekites? Uh, they were close to, to Zipporah's home, and so uh, this war may have presented an opportunity for, uh, for the kids to spend some time with Grandpa. Uh, that's probably how Jethro heard about everything that happened, as Zipporah brought this news of, of everything that, that she and the kids had witnessed. Uh, but either way, Jethro announces his plan to visit, uh, and we get the sense that uh, there is a good relationship between uh, he and Moses. Uh, verse 7 tells us Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him as an aside, a good example of, uh, to treat your, your in-laws well. And no matter how far you've climbed up in the world, no matter how high you get up, I mean, Moses is leading this whole nation. He's never too high to honor his father and mother and even his in-laws. But as Jethro visits, they catch up and Moses recounts the story. I mean, consider this for a moment. It is actually a story that, that Jethro has heard before. And the reason is because it parallels Moses' own story, doesn't it? I mean, look at the names of Moses' kids in verse 3. It's sort of Moses' story, but it could be a description of Israel's story. In verse 3, the name of one was Gershom, for he said, I've been a sojourner in a foreign land, certainly true of Israel, as they languished under Pharaoh. And then verse 4, and the name of the other was Eliezer, 
For he said, the God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. That's exactly what God has done for his people. And what happened to Moses foreshadowed what happened to them. They were sojourners and slaves. And God was their help. God had delivered them. And we see that more in verse 8 as Moses now recounts the story. Uh, He highlights three things. Can can you spot them Uh, as we read it? Verse 8, there are three elements to this story. Uh, Then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardships that had come upon them in the way and how the Lord had delivered them. Uh, Firstly, he tells of of God's judgment on Egypt, uh, all that God had done to Pharaoh and the Egyptians, no doubt including how he cast them into the Red Sea. Maybe he even sung the song for them in chapter 15. Uh, Secondly, it doesn't stop there, does it? Like he tells Jethro as well, I think this is interesting, he tells uh, tells him all about the wilderness journey so far, all the hardships that had come upon them in the way. Uh, And thirdly, amid all of this, Uh, What was the main theme of the story? Well, it was the theme of how God had delivered them in Egypt or in the wilderness. God had delivered them. God had set them free. Uh, And deliverance or rescue turns out to be a key word. And it's there uh, in verse 8. It's it's there in verse 9. It's twice in verse 10. It's this deliverance that causes Jethro to rejoice. Uh, This is what he blesses God for, the way he delivered his people. Uh, And clearly, all of this has a huge impact on Jethro. Look at the conclusion in verse 11. Ever since the beginning of Exodus, this has been the response that God himself has been gunning for. Look at verse 11. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods. I mean, what an amazing claim for a pagan priest. This guy has spent his whole life serving all kinds of different deities. But now, now he's heard what happened with Israel, he's able to put the pieces together. Now he's there with a million people all in the wilderness. He can see it with his own eyes. Uh, And now he knows uh, how God, with a mighty hand, has defeated all of the mighty false gods of Egypt. And so he can see that his own so-called gods are no match for this. And so he brings an offering to a true God, uh, to uh, to the true God, together with Moses and Aaron and the elders of Israel. In in some sense, uh, we could say this is sort of like uh, Jethro's baptism service. Uh, This man has come to faith, and, and what an incredible thing. Uh, No doubt an answer to many prayers. I mean, each night, perhaps Moses and Zipporah pray together with the kids, Lord, please help Grandpa come to faith. Uh, But we have to ask ourselves, what is this story doing here in Exodus 18? I mean, it it seems a little bit odd. I mean, we've seen such amazing things. Uh, God rescuing Israel, leading them through the wilderness, coming to Sinai to receive his law. Why plant this personal testimony of Jethro right in the middle of it? Well, this is the point. I think this is what it's all about. It reminds us of God's global plan. It's an important reminder of the fact that that this is not ultimately all about Israel. Global witness is the goal. Uh, And we have to say this focus on the nations, nations like Midian, uh, nations beyond Israel, goes all the way back to Abraham, doesn't it? Uh, God promised to bless Abraham. If you were at Sunday school today, you'll know we read these verses together. God promised to bless Abraham and his family, yes, but through him, he promised that blessing would go to all nations. And so before we get to Sinai, we get this important reminder. I think that's what this is doing here in in the book of Exodus. I mean, just think, God is about to enter into this special, unique covenant with Israel. I mean, it would be very tempting for Israel to believe that, that it was all about them. 
And this is a mistake that, that many of us make, isn't it? Because actually they were special. They were important to God. They were God's chosen people. And yet they end up making this mistake. They begin to look down on the other nations. Uh, what a mistake we can make as well. We can do the same thing. I mean, especially as good reformed Calvinistic types. I mean, we know we're God's elect. God has chosen us. And it's true from before the foundation of the world. But how tragic when we begin to think that that's kind of where it stops. Uh, when we start to look down our noses at all of those godless pagans out there. Uh, what a terrible attitude to have. Uh, God has chosen you. He's chosen us, yes. But, but as the Lord says, he's chosen us to be the light of the world. The Lord Jesus goes on in, in Matthew chapter 5. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand where it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. In some ways, the reason Exodus 18 is here is to remind us of this very thing, that God's blessing was never intended to stop with Israel. And it reminds us of the same thing, that his, his blessing is never intended to stop with us either. Uh, global witness is the goal. And by global witness, I don't just mean missionaries overseas either. Uh, I mean your friends, I mean your family, your colleagues, the people in your neighborhood. I mean, have you ever considered what God is doing in your life is not just for you? It's also intended to be a witness to the people all around you. Uh, the same is true of the church, isn't it, of our church here? I mean, we need to remember this even amid our building search, don't we? I mean, the whole thing is not just about us finding a nice place to meet. I mean, that, that is great. Uh, no, the reason God is picking us up and, and planting us somewhere else is because he has a plan to impact other people, to draw more people to himself. Uh, let me share something, in fact, really encouraging that, that stood out uh, in that vein as I reflected this week on the text. Uh, notice how the way God uses his people to bear witness extends beyond simply when things are going well. In fact, it extends beyond when we feel we're doing well also. I mean, think about this. This is often how we think, isn't it? Uh, when my life is blessed, when I'm handling challenges well, 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 then I'm a good witness. That's sort of what we think. And if we, if we do badly, well, we're destroying our witness or something in that vein. When we fail, when we grumble, when we're discouraged, we're a bad witness. But, but look at verse 8. I think this is interesting. Notice what has such an impact on Jethro. Uh, Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake. Well, that's good. That's kind of undeniably awesome. But he also told him all the hardships that had come upon them in the way. I mean, I wonder, did he tell them how the people had responded to the hardships? I mean, we've seen it the last few weeks. They certainly didn't respond too well. They grumbled. They kicked. They complained. I mean, you might have wondered, did Moses really want to tell Jethro that? Couldn't he have kind of censored the news a little bit? They had tried to sue God and possibly tried to stone Moses. And yet Moses shares all of this with his father-in-law. I mean, what was he doing? Could, could Jethro not have concluded that, that the people of Israel were terrible? I mean, yes, that would have been a right conclusion. And yet, this is the amazing thing, how Moses continues. Despite the fact that they're terrible, God still delivered them. And I think this is the problem. Sometimes when Christians respond really well to suffering, 
Uh, we have to ask, what do, what do non-Christians think? Well, very often, you actually find that they praise that person. They kind of say, that, this person's incredible. I mean, they're kind of superhuman. I, I mean, they're sort of an incredible person. But uh, actually, it doesn't necessarily bear witness to God's grace. Uh, but when Christians respond very badly, now I'm not advocating for this. I'm not kind of saying, look, you know, respond the worst way possible. But this is just a fact. Christians often fail. And when they do, is their witness destroyed? Well, I mean, there are times that could be the case. But actually, no, this is the incredible hope of our text, I think. Uh, actually, it witnesses to how gracious God is. And so what an encouragement here. Uh, the encouragement really is this. It's not about you. Uh, the encouragement is this. Global witness is the goal, and it is a goal that God is committed to. God is gracious to his people. He's gracious to his church. And so that no matter where we find ourselves meeting for worship, even if we don't like it, even if we complain about it, God can even use that to advance his purpose. God's plan is to use us to bear witness to himself, whether we succeed or whether we fail. God's plan is global witness. That's the goal. And let's not forget that. Let's keep that goal at the forefront of everything we do. Uh, but for that to be effective, for us to do that effectively, the, the second point comes into play. So having considered that global witness is the goal, let's move on secondly and, and consider how to effectively reach that goal. Uh, godly wisdom in government is what's needed. Godly wisdom in government. And uh, just to say here, I, I'm not speaking about secular government. We're not going to get overly political at this point in the service. Uh, we're talking about church government, another topic which I know must excite some of you. Maybe not. Uh, but that's what we see in verse 13 and following. Uh, and this really is the point. For Israel to function effectively as God's people, they need to be led well. Uh, to be effective global witnesses, they need to get their own house in order. And I think this is really a general principle. It, it applies to the church particularly. It's not that we're simply aiming for the church to be a well-oiled machine, I should say this, nor can we assess a church simply in terms of how well-managed its programs are or its procedures or its policies. I mean, some people really love that stuff. Uh, but in my view, I think being too obsessed about those things is a little bit deadly. Uh, the church isn't a business and it shouldn't be run like a business. Uh, the church is the household of God. The church should therefore be run like a family. Uh, but having said all of that, uh, bad leadership is a bottleneck. Bad leadership is a bottleneck to effectiveness. It hinders us from being effective on our mission. Uh, and that's exactly what we see in Exodus 18, isn't it? It, it really is a, a leadership bottleneck. I mean, did you notice what the bottleneck is, or perhaps better, who the bottleneck is? Uh, look down at verse 13 with me. Uh, the next day, Moses sat to judge the people. And the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. And now this gives us insight into Moses' average workday, and it's certainly a workday that none of us would envy. Uh, at this point, he is the only prophet and leader in Israel. And as I already said, there's roughly a million people. And so dusk till dawn and dawn till dusk, Moses is acting as a teacher, a counselor, a judge, an arbiter. He's, he's actually judging cases between people. Uh, a million people. I mean, you thought you were busy. Just think about Moses. Uh, you thought our courts were backed up. I mean, just imagine this. 
Uh, no wonder Jethro is indignant in verse 14. Look at verse 14. Uh, when Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, what is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? What on earth are you doing, Moses? This just makes no sense. But I've got to do this, said Moses. I mean, look at Moses' response in verse 15. Because the people come to me to inquire of God. I mean, what better reason could there be? When they have a dispute, they come to me, and I decide between one person and another, and I make known to them the statutes of God and his laws. What an amazing calling Moses has. Essentially, Moses is saying this, look, I'm the only prophet, the only one God has appointed, and, and so there is no other option. But there is a better option. Jethro says so in verse 17. Moses' father-in-law said to him, what you're doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. And so what does Jethro recommend? Well, we should note that the advice of a recently converted pagan doesn't just change the shape of Moses' ministry. It, in fact, changes the shape of the future of Israel, and, and you might even say changes the course of human history. Uh, because what he suggests is a tiered system of courts, which is in fact the foundation of almost every Western judicial system. Now, on the one hand, he acknowledges that Moses has this unique role. Moses is kind of a, there's still the prophet, but he also acts kind of as a supreme court. In verse 19, now obey my voice, I will give you advice and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God, and you shall warn them about the statutes and laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. And Moses continues to be the prophet and the teacher that he's always been. But, but in verse 21, he suggests that Moses appoint other men to help. And uh, Philip Riken, in his commentary, describes the criteria for leadership in, in this way. He says it must be mature. It must be representative, and it should be shared. It, it must be mature in that the leadership has to be godly. These are people who are not susceptible to bribes. It's representative in that the leaders come from the various families, the various tribes, the different groupings amongst the nation. And finally, it's a team effort. It is shared. Uh, Moses, as I said, acts like a kind of supreme court, but in general, most everyday cases are, are handled by these leaders. It really is a stroke of genius, isn't it? And, and you may have noticed it is parallel in some way to the shepherding plan that we rolled out a little bit earlier in the service. Now, I have to say, I didn't plan this. It would have been great to say that I kind of planned to preach on this text on this particular Sunday when we announced that plan. I, I could say it was planned, just not by me. It just happens in the providence of God that we announce this just when we preach in this passage. And there is an important parallel, uh, I think. Because uh, we have to ask, why does Jethro suggest this? We've already said this kind of oversight is necessary to effectively care for the people. But Moses cannot do it on his own. If he tried, what would happen? Well, he would get burned out, the people would fall through the cracks, all kinds of needs would be unmet, issues wouldn't be addressed, and, and God's people may well fall apart. And, and what would be the impact of that? Well, it would hinder the witness of Israel before the nations. They would fail to reflect God as his people. In other words, what is the bottleneck? Well, the bottleneck is Moses himself. And I have to confess, it can certainly be the case and may have been the case and may still be the case at times that, that I may be the bottleneck here at West Valley. 
One of the aims of our strategic three-year plan was to address that very thing. It's why as part of our build plan, we've tried to draw other people in to leadership, creating teams in terms of hospitality and evangelism and, and things like that. And more recently, we've just elected new uh, elders and deacons. What an amazing provision of God for our church. Uh, And this is the point of the new shepherding plan. I mean, I'm still the pastor. I'm still preaching and teaching. I'm still available to all of you as I've always been. Uh, But with more elders and more deacons, we can can share the load between myself and Dave and Buck. Uh, That means that we can better serve and support you. And this is the key. We need to hold this together with the first point. We need to remember that ultimately this is not about us. Dealing with the bottleneck frees Israel and us to more faithfully fulfill our God-given mission. And so Jethro gives Moses this advice. And you know, at one point in, and I think it's Deuteronomy, Moses is described as the most humble man who ever lived. And I think verse 24 tells us why. Uh, Moses was humble enough to take advice from his father-in-law. Let that be an example to all of us. Uh, But before we get too excited about this, we we do have to pause and ask this. I mean, Moses follows this advice. I want to say we follow this advice as as we govern this particular church. But we need to ask ourselves, is this actually good advice? I mean, don't forget who's giving it. Jethro is a very, very new Christian. I mean, he literally was converted yesterday. Should we be taking leadership advice from a recently converted pagan priest? I mean, are these the kind of leadership books that I should be recommending in elder training? Isn't there a risk here of importing too much so-called wisdom from secular pagan leadership into the church? Well, yes, I think there is a danger that we can do that. In fact, there are two equal and opposite dangers when it comes to this thing. You might even say the first point addresses the question of the outflow of the gospel from the church to the world. And this second point draws attention to the movement in the opposite direction, uh, to the inflow of wisdom from the world to the church. Uh, And what are the two big dangers here when we think about this advice? Well, firstly, there is a risk of uncritically accepting worldly wisdom. At times, it may be tempting to ignore God's word and and base everything that we do on secular business principles. Some, I've even heard argue, uh, that pastors uh, would be better off getting an MBA than a degree in theology. I think that's kind of a little bit crazy. I think it undermines the very foundation of what the church is and what the church is about. But we have to identify there there is an opposite danger, and the opposite danger is this, that some of us are tempted to arrogantly ignore good advice simply because where that advice comes from. I mean, we can assume sometimes that simply because we're Christians, and especially Christian leaders, we somehow know everything we need to know already. Well, praise the Lord, Moses was humble enough to receive good counsel. Uh, And I think the answer to these two extremes is to prayerfully reflect and submit everything to the Bible's scrutiny. Uh, We're free to accept or reject whatever is is good, whatever is helpful, or or whatever is not. I mean, that is really what Moses does. Did you notice this? Even when Jethro gives this advice, he doesn't do so arrogantly. He doesn't do so presumptuously. Listen, Moses, he he doesn't say, look, this is what you need to do. Follow everything I say. And in verse 19, he says, I will give you advice, and God be with you. And then in verse 23, if you do this, God will direct you. And so Moses takes it to God. And he concludes that this is the right thing to do. 
And so it is with the church. This is, this is the flow of, uh, of, yes, the gospel to the world from the church, but, but we often find that there is wisdom, uh, insight that comes from the world to the church, a part of God's common grace, common sense. Uh, the purpose of the church is global witness. That's the goal. But godly wisdom in government is what is needed to achieve it. And sometimes that, that wisdom comes in the form of common sense or common grace. Sometimes there is an inflow from the world to the church. And of course, behind all of this is God himself. In fact, the Westminster Confession of Faith recognizes this in fact, insight. It, it puts it it's so well, so much so that I'm going to quote it to you. It says, There are some circumstances concerning the worship of God and the government of the church common to human actions and societies which are to be ordered by the light of nature and Christian prudence according to the general rules of the word. And all of that is to say that Moses heeds Jethro's advice because it's clear to him that this is godly wisdom. And as we navigate the challenges and changes that we face at West Valley, we're going to need godly wisdom too. You may be the source of that wisdom. You may have insight that, that's helpful to share with the leaders. Like Moses, we are seeking to honor God's pattern in church government. That is why we have elders and deacons in the first place. And yet, please pray for the leaders of this church. Pray for the building search team as they, they, they weigh the different options. Pray for the elders as they work together with them to decide on a new location. Amid all of this, we need great wisdom, don't we? And as we begin to make this transition in the next few months, don't forget what this is all about, what, what Exodus 18 reminds us of. Yes, we need godly wisdom in government. Uh, we need help and insight in leading the church forward. But what is this all about? Where are we going? What is the goal? Is it about us finding a nice, comfortable home, a place simply where we can grow? Well, yes, those things are good and desirable. Uh, but let's not forget, God's purpose extends well beyond us. Uh, God has a plan to reach the nations. And the nations includes Emmaus. It includes Mukunji, Allentown, Bethlehem, East Greenville, Pensburg, and, and the whole Lehigh Valley and beyond. Global witness is the goal. And so let's keep this in our minds and hearts as we call on God for wisdom to lead us. In fact, let's do that now. Let's turn to God in prayer. Please bow your heads and pray with me. Father God, we thank you so much for your word. Uh, thank you for your plan before the foundation of the world to gather a people for yourself from every tribe and tongue and nation. Uh, Lord, thank you for the great grace that you even use us, your church, to accomplish this end. And so, Lord, we pray for wisdom. Give us godly wisdom in, in, in moving forward. Lead us to the right place. And, Lord, help us amid all of this to remember the goal that it's not just about ourselves. Lord, we thank you for your plan. Thank you that you've made us a part of it. So help us to be witnesses to your mercy. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.